Today's episode is brought to you by MetPro. Hey, do you want to improve your health but not sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is extremely difficult. I know it was for me until I found MetPro. The key is to understanding and mastering your metabolism. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want access to the tools their industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co, that's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. And hey, the Dose listeners will get up to one month free if you sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. More on MetPro later in this episode. On today's episode, Matt Welch. Well, that, you know, that person's a Trump voter. We don't want any of them around. And I'm like, that's no, that's not our value. I mean, you can't write out 74 million people. That just doesn't, there's no scenario. You shouldn't write out 1 million people, uh, let alone that. And the uh, and I think Jordan Peterson, actually, who's, I'm not the world's biggest fan, but I find him interesting. He went on Bill Maher a couple of years ago, and he made this essential point that I think about a lot, is like, to the people who are absolutely outraged at those 74 million people, what are you going to do with them? Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. Well, it's my pleasure to have Matt Welch on the show today. I've been a Matt Welch fan for a long time. So for me, this was a great conversation. He's an editor at large at Reason, the libertarian magazine of, quote, free minds and free markets. He served as Reason's editor-in-chief from 2008 to 2016. He's also the co-author, along with Nick Gillespie, of the 2011 book, The Declaration of Independence, How Libertarian Politics Can Fix What's Wrong with America. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, ESPN, the Hardball Times, the Columbia Journalism Review, Salon.com, Commentary, Orange County Register, and scores of other publications. He's a frequent guest host on MSNBC, Fox News, Fox Business Network, CNN. Uh, you've probably seen him on Bill Maher's show on HBO as well, where that's how I came across him. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. This is a dose of common sense. I really appreciated sitting down and talking with Matt about Kind of the craziness we see in today's political spectrum. We'll sit back, relax, and enjoy this great conversation with the one and only Matt Welch here at the Dose. I saw you on uh, Bill Maher, and I talked to that guy. So that wasn't that long ago. That was only <laughs> like a week or so ago. So thank you for, for accepting the invitation. Uh, the fun thing about going on Bill Maher, uh, besides doing it, which usually is pretty fun, although sometimes it can be terrifying, especially the first time you go on, um, but is that people will see it that just otherwise would never encounter what you're doing in the media world. You will always hear from that friend in high school who you haven't talked to for 25 years. Um, my my uh, favorite moment like that is I attend a uh, local uh, uh, old Italian Catholic church in my neighborhood and these great old Italian ladies and one of them <laughs> came up and you don't associate Bill Maher with religion necessarily. It's kind of more like the opposite. Um, and there's uh, a sweet old Italian Catholic Catholic lady's like, I saw you on Bill Maher. You were great. <laughs> what are you doing watching Bill Maher? But the world is a wonderful place. Yeah. No, I, I, it's, it's got to be, yeah, I can imagine it's got to be terrifying. I always thought about well, what it would be like to sit up there. And is it, I guess you really, it, it's fairly unscripted. I mean, I guess you know what the topic is, the two topics are going to be. 
but you don't don't know where it's going to go, right? Particularly if the other. Yeah, and 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 one of the fun things about doing, and this is true of of uh, other media too, because you you know you generally do have a sense of of the topics, but there are certain hosts who. Um, you know, their brain just might just veer in another direction entirely. And they want to have this suddenly a philosophical question, uh, conversation about X. Um, I always like that. That's more fun to me than, than to know, okay, here's the six minutes and we're going to, you know, stay here on this idea. And you've got your 45 seconds to, to do whatever. But Neil Cavuto at Fox is really great like that. He'll just like th- throw the script out, out of the water and let's just now explore over here. MSNBC used to have a few weekend, um, morning uh shows where that kind of discussion was encouraged and it's always more fun so bill can be like that um it, you know even if the topic has already uh been like this before the way that he'll present it um and just sort of like throw a jump ball in the air and see if you're going to jump up and, and hit it uh is is different so that makes it more of a of a, a mental challenge you have to be flexible you can't go in to that show at all i i think you can't in general uh, go on tv at all with like, okay, I'm going to say this in this order. And it's, you know, it's, I got my subject and verb and predicate all sorted out. Like, nope, that's not going to work. He's going to discombobulate you. And also you're doing it in front of a live audience, which is very, very different than almost any other kind of uh, television uh, experience. So it's fun. Yeah. I can imagine. I, I like that too. I mean, it's, it's like living on, it's terrifying, but that's kind of where life kind of begins that edge of kind of being uncomfortable, that uncomfortable zone, right? It, that's kind of, I always likened it. I mean, I've, I've been a print journalist uh, since 1986. So uh, <laughs> it's been a while now. And, uh, and I always presumed that, you know, I had a, uh, uh, I had a, a voice and face made for print. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, this wasn't going to be the, the fun thing for me, but I noticed early on when I started doing television in particular, um, more so than radio, um, there is uh it is so much. I used to play a, a lot in a lot of bands, you know, ma- making music, made records. And the there is a feeling that you get when you're playing music on stage in front of people uh, right before the first note, right before the first you know, thing kicks in. Um, that is absolute beautiful terror. You don't know what's it, 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 it all could come crashing down right now. This could be the time that it blows up your career, especially now in these fraught media times. You know, you slip your tongue up uh, the wrong way. Uh, in theory, you could be out of a job overnight. It's happened to many people uh, more recently than ever. But um, uh, what I noticed is that the physical sensation was so much more like playing music. And that's one of the reasons why I like playing music is because that high, you're not going to get the same thing by going, boom, I just turned in my article. <laughs> like it's, right. It is different. There's a, there is a, a whole like performance well and anxiety and then payoff and um, I used to co-host a TV show on Fox Business Network with uh, MTV's Kennedy uh, and Camille Foster call, called the uh, the Independents, and uh, and what I noticed was like uh, you, you know it was a I think it was at nine o'clock or at eight o'clock it was in the evening and you'd stop and there was just no chance that you can go to sleep for the for two to three hours afterwards because you're just going yeah just hyped up your body has hummed up a thing. Um, so, uh, I really enjoy that and, uh, and lean into it, um, as, as much as possible. I like that phrase, beautiful terror. That is a great way to describe it. I, I told this story before on the show, but I'm telling you that I had a, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, I had a, a coach here 
and she was helping with my public speaking. I was doing a lot of keynotes at the time and and she was actually an acting coach that, you know, had her SAG awards, had worked in Hollywood, had, had been in a couple of pilots, and she moved back here to where I live in Kansas. And she was, and I, she was a great uh, coach. She, she did, uh, I did a lot of acting exercises for my keynote, which I wasn't expecting. But anyway, I was coming up on one of my biggest keynotes at the time, fairly large audience, and she came up to me. She was there with me back, backstage, and they were getting ready to introduce me. And, she had said, are you scared? And my initial response, like, oh, no, I'm fine. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually petrified. And she grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, that's what it feels like to be alive. Now go kill him. You know, and she said, it was just, it was just like <laughs> totally that, that great advice from her. You know, she said, that's the that's the edge of living is what she told me, how she phrased it. But yeah, no, I like that. What do you say to uh, going back to kind of. I was watching that episode with you on Mar, and then I was watching the critiques. You know, he always gets he gets kind of slayed uh, afterwards, saying that he's kind of changed and this and that. And I think it, in that episode you were on, he was saying, "I haven't changed. The the kind of the political left has changed." I tend to agree. You and I are the same age, and and I felt like for the longest time, or I have felt for the longest time, I don't have a political home, right? And I guess that's why I'm kind of drawn to what you believe and kind of the libertarian front. If anything, that's kind of where I. I lay my hat, but what, what two things, do you agree with that kind of sentiment of what Mar said? Do you think he's kind of been steadfast and not changed and the political left has really kind of lost his way? Um, and I guess for that matter, the Republican party too. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, I, I'm always kind of allergic to the formulation. I haven't changed. All you people have, because if I hear myself saying it, I mean, it's 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 the classic thing that middle aged uh, fuddy duddies start saying um, these kids nowadays. Um, so but at the same time, let's remember that his original show, what was the name of it? It was politically incorrect. It was saying stuff back then that was against the orthodoxy of the times and bursting these kind of little bubbles of polite society. And a lot of that was aimed in the original uh, time uh, against the left as well, because there has been um, these sort of waves of uh, kind of uh, conformity, orthodoxy, um, uh, uh, almost panic over what happens if people say certain words or, or, or speak certain things or talk to certain people is, is now more where this is at. We've had the introduction of the horrifyingly bad uh, uh, verb platforming. Um, like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're how could you dare platform Rand Paul? It's like, well, he's one of 100 senators. I don't know. That sounds like a, a thing that regardless of if you think he's a total fool, he's a senator. Uh, that's a, that's an actual like conversation that that uh, journalism theorists and people at The New York Times had in the wake of uh, Tom Cotton's uh, op ed. Uh, in 2020. So there's definitely a, uh, a spasm happening right now. Um, and it's, it is exactly for people your and my age. It's strange because in 1986, when I was a college freshman and started working um, uh, in journalism, uh, we associated the people championing uh, transgressive speech to be on the left. Um, with with some exceptions, you know, there was a bit of like the Wally George, Morton Downey kind of, uh, you know, Andrew Dice Clay shock jock happening on broadly on the right. Yes, that was a thing. Um, Sean Hannity was a, a broadcaster at KCSB where, where I was at. 
uh, at the time and you know saying stuff like homosexuality inevitably leads to bestiality and and things like that that sound kind of off uh these days but um uh but broadly speaking you, you know our champion we we were brought up in in the catechism of the free speech movement right which it which in in berkeley in the uc university of california system um it was at first, largely like, hey, we want to be able to talk about war on campus, which was weirdly outlawed at the time, or it was against the rules. Um, so all of the pushing of the boundaries seemed to be coming on the left. Playboy was not a rightist magazine. Um, it was a left of center magazine. Um, and so that transgressiveness could be about sex. It could be about all kinds of stuff. Uh, it could be about war. It could just be about, uh, you know, <laughs> I was uh, reminiscing with uh, great radio host in uh, WBAL in Baltimore this morning, C4, who, whose uh, entire family is like, it, they are the history of the civil rights struggle in Baltimore. And C4 is now very much a political independent and he finds himself alienated. And we are talking, you know, about Joe Rogan and all the various contretemps right now. And, and you know, uh, the, them damn kids uh, uh, who, uh, who, what would happen if they were subjected to a Richard Pryor record? Or an Eddie Murphy early career record, like my God, they would they would have a, a hard time. So yeah, I think there's definitely some aspect of censoriousness that is just startling to watch, and and also a, like apologetics for it. The amount of like cheerleading you see among people who work in free speech industries and in journalism and in the arts and whatever in academia, absolutely cheering on um, people either losing their jobs or being kicked off of platforms or whatever. Um, uh, that is surprising and it's uh, 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 to to watch. And it's understandable that uh, Bill Maher would kick against it. The right, uh, uh, you know, has departed so many of the of the things that uh, uh, we were we grew up with thinking. I mean, at least there was always a rhetorical feint towards free markets. Right. Regardless of what Republicans actually did when they went into office, which is usually spend just as much money, um, but on different things, maybe. Um, but that kind of Trump and the rise of the kind of uh, populist right um, has there's been a real repudiation of that. So uh, we're definitely seeing a lot of shaking up of the snow globe right now. From my point of view, um, both the right and the left in the in their broader organized blocks are are veering towards populism and uh, illiberalism, sort of anti-liberal in, in the classic sense of the word liberalism. And um, that is concerning. It's like the it's the the biggest contextual concern that I have about where America is at right now is basically that and its various products. At the same time as someone who just doesn't belong to teams, uh, that creates a target-rich environment. And it also creates audiences for people who are fed up with the way that 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 those people are being sort of flattered or served. Like it seemed, it's alienating. Um, and so I think there's a real opportunity in media, especially, but also in politics, um, kind of at least the way we talk about politics, to engage with audiences who just sort of instinctively say, what do you what are you people even talking about anymore? And uh, and Bill Maher, at his best, has always been someone to find that sweet spot and to kind of inflame people on both sides while he's doing so. Yeah, and I do think it is something. I mean, again, I hate putting people in in tight little boxes with bows on them and, and labeling. Um, but I mean, if our generation, I was I was rereading a. Um, I think you retweeted it, and I can't remember who the article was or even the author. I should look it up, but I just read it this morning. Uh, you retweeted it, and it was about how Generation X was kind of this—we're in this middle, right? And it's and it's so true. I and remember when we were in um, 
late high school and college when Tipper Gore was, I, I remember how pissed off I was at that time. Remember like putting the record labels, uh, warning labels on the records and trying to get us to not listen to certain things. And Yeah. And I remember, uh, I mean, I remember, I remember, sorry to interrupt, but the, even the, uh, uh, 2000 democratic convention held in Los Angeles, uh, is where I'm from. Um, they, uh, Tipper Gore showed up because Al Gore was the nominee and, uh, I think she was wearing a Grateful Dead shirt and they had a little thing on stage called Drummers for Tipper. And I was looking around going, wait a second. Yeah. It was only 14 years ago. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago yeah. when she was the bad guy here on all this kind of stuff. What are you people doing pretending to dance? At yeah. this? I think Twisted Sister was her big like ire. I think how crazy it was. D. Snyder's going to, you know, talking and you know, going up to Congress and Pleading his case, I thought that was a great moment in political history. Would see D. Schneider at the Congress. name. The name of the author is uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez, yeah. um, who wrote a piece called "Gen X Marks the Spot" on his uh, newsletter, which is called the Poll Request, and uh, and it's great. I mean, I, I'm a sucker for anything that venerates Gen X, um, obviously, uh, but there's something to it that that there is a we are uh, uh, caught in a sensorial sandwich between. Boomers um, who are, are still exercising their kind of uh, control over culture and their piety uh, about what is good and what is bad. And between millennials who are uh, very much, uh, you know, uh, uh, don't have the same kind of bedrock faith, have more of a sense that speech is, is, is a threat. It's violence. It makes them unsafe, um, uh, which I think is nonsensical, but uh, but holds a lot of sway among that generation. And we're kind of in the middle of going, what are you people doing here? Uh, and the best thing you can say about us is that we still don't have any political power after all this. <laughs> like the, the people who end up running the country are still going to be boomers. And pretty soon it's going to be like Pete Buttigieg. I don't think he's even Gen X anymore. Yeah, no, it's so true. I remember when the first Gulf War happened, I think I was a senior in college. One of my uh, computer science teachers, he was a staunch lefty at the time you know and um he organized a massive protest on the campus at the time but i remember we went there and i mean everybody was cordial i mean he was even cordial to me and i was i was slated to go into the marine corps i i was going through officer canada school i knew when i got my degree i was getting a commission and going into the marine corps and he would talk with me and that's what kills me right i mean he didn't agree with the fact of the Marine Corps, you know, the military, the Marine Corps, the funding, all that. And of course I was all for it because this was going to be my career. And, uh, but he had this civil conversation with me and that's what's I, I, I yearn for, I long for those days. And, um, like now it's just like everybody be at your throats, you know, I suppose you had it there too, but back then, but in my scenarios anecdotal for that one situation but i mean you know no one was yelling no one was yelling no one was yelling at each other you know he was protesting and i was like i will defend your right to protest anyway sorry and even and even with the yelling at at one another some of sometimes that can be productive conversation because you are able to to put a human face at the other side of an argument or a set of beliefs that you might have you might get mad at that person um i sometimes think that one a bad little turning point or hinge point was when uh, uh, John Stewart went on I forget what uh, um, uh, CNN or yeah I think it was CNN and uh, sat down 
with the guests uh, at Crossfire, the co-host at Crossfire, and said, you know what, you people are part of the problem. Stop it. Stop it. Right. And his objection back then was, uh, and I think Tucker Carlson was somehow even involved. My brain's a little bit foggy. Uh, but um, his objection was that we're doing this stylized um, rhetorical uh, political combat. And um, and that is uh, it's it's kind of disingenuous. And it also just turns it into a spectator sport when it's actually much more serious than all of that. And I get that. And I understand that critique. And maybe I shared it on a, a couple of occasions. But what do we have instead now? We have a bunch of people not talking to one another and then just lobbing like see, half of CNN's program is about how evil Fox is. And, you know, 30 percent of Fox's program is about how evil CNN is. And it's like, you know, there's news in the world, too, besides this. And there isn't a lot of interchange between those people. And um, and you see that there's just a lot of sorting. I live in Brooklyn where, you know, the. Uh, my local block probably voted about 90% for uh, Joe Biden. Um, Hillary Clinton was more, I think Gary Johnson came in second in uh, 2016 and Donald Trump came, got like one vote uh, in our, in our area. But um, you see it um, like people uh, coming up with uh, like my, uh, my daughter, I don't mean to throw her under the bus, but she reflects a certain, uh, 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 attitude that's being kind of communicated at the public school. She's 13. Um, and uh, she will sort of say something like, uh, well, that, you know, that person's a Trump voter. We don't want any of them around. And I'm like, that's no, that's not our value. I mean, you can't write out 74 million people. That just doesn't, there's no scenario. You shouldn't write out 1 million people, uh, let alone that. And the uh, and I think Jordan Peterson, actually, who's, I'm not the world's biggest fan, but I find him interesting. He went on Bill Maher a couple of years ago and he made this essential point that I think about a lot is like um, to the people who are absolutely outraged at those 74 million people, what are you going to do with them? Like you can't just keep redrawing various boundaries and maps and, and platforms and whatever to exclude them from all conversations. You're going to have to deal with them. And I think 2022 this year politically is going to be a year of uh, of a lot of Democrats and and their kind of allies or or uh, co ideologues uh, in the media are kind of are going to have a traumatic time coming face to face with that Americans are going to be rejecting a lot of Democratic politicians this year. Absolutely, it's happening. It's going to continue happening. Uh, it's pretty mathematical almost at this point, and you're going to have to come up with a different analysis rather than. Oh, it's because they're all crazy racists who want to destroy de democracy. Um, let's grant that there might be a couple of those. I don't know. Um, but it's just the same way like in Canada where the prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, not Pierre, uh, that's, a, that's a Gen X slip, uh, Justin Trudeau, um, uh, the way that he characterizes the trucker protests of being like, oh, this is just extreme, bigoted, you know, Nazi sympathetic people. It's like, you've got to find a way to deal with and understand or be around enough people who think different than the, than you politically, or else you're going to say crazy things. Um, and you're, you're probably going to act on those crazy things at some point if you have power and it's not, it's not a good place. I think it's much more healthy and decent to be having conversations with people with whom you disagree and hopefully a drink. Yeah. It's all about engagement. I mean, that's what drives me crazy about all of this stuff that we're seeing, you know, from the, the Rogan deal to everybody else is like, well, why don't, why are you so afraid of, why don't you just engage and have a conversation? I mean, because that's how things get better. And 
and to, to say, well, we got to silence him, that just makes me even more suspect to, to, to the motives. I mean, to sit there and say, I mean, what, what would I, I've been saying this for before even this flap began, like what what is a one of the single most impactful things that Rochelle Walensky could do to convince people to get vaccinated? Go on Joe Rogan. Have your ideas and your science and whatever uh, at at your disposal. Um, if he starts talking nonsense, you you can like disprove him in the moment. And you know, it turns out that he can in the moment say, "Oh, that's a good point. That's interesting. I was wrong about that." I've seen him do this with my friend Josh Zepps from Australia, um, uh, talking about uh, you know the vaccine's effect on myocarditis, um, and he you know in real time sort of altered his view in the face of evidence, like go to where there is an audience, understand that there are audiences out there um, that they might be persuadable. And if we are uh, behind at this point, uh, other countries in vaccine uptake, find out where those people are, talk to them. Um, and, but that's not the, uh, that's not the approach. The approach for a lot of people is, and including the administration who, you know, singled out Spotify again last week, um, uh, Jen Psaki uh, from the, the white house, but also said uh, every you know uh, uh, tech media company and and news organization really needs to watch what they say much closer, and they need to be on the on the lookout for misinformation and to make sure that they are uh, you know uplifting solid information and kind of uh, downgrading or blocking bad information. It's that's uh, I mean I I understand on an individual level that one and the individual journalistic level uh, I take it very seriously do your darndest to always say things that you know to be true. And if you don't know it to be true, uh, label it uh, in some way speculation or whatever. I, you know, I bang myself up over that um, for, as a White House that has regulatory power over uh, everybody <laughs> uh, on some level. Um, their approach, and this approach has been, been uh, um, played out and reinforced everywhere in the media, it seems, is like, well, we need to take the microphone away. And that's just not... You've lost sight of what you were trying to do. What is the problem that you're trying to combat? Your, your problem is people aren't getting enough vaccines. You'd like to do them better. And you think that they're not doing it because the information that they're getting is bad. Okay, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. I, I tend to be kind of skeptical about that. But um, to make the information vanish? <laughs> that's no, like you have to, as a, as a public health uh, and it's a federal government, you have to make sure that the things that you say are true, which they've done a very poor job all throughout the pandemic from the beginning to this week, they've done a bad job of communicating truth and also being, it, being uh, disciplined about not communicating untruths or not over uh, speculating about what a certain study might say. Um, and give people enough information to make their own decisions. They haven't done that. And, it's, and by targeting misinformation or supposed misinformation, because some of these things turned out turn out uh, in the long run to be uh, approved by the CDC or like official lines by the CDC. An example would be Rand Paul was banned, kicked off of YouTube for a week because he suggested that cloth masks aren't very helpful in blocking um, uh, uh, transmission of COVID. He was right. <laughs> and he got kicked off for that because back then you weren't supposed to say that. And the CDC wasn't saying that. Well, the CDC is saying that now. Um, and so where does he go to get his uh, apology? Well, of course, no one's going to apologize to him. And like the the idea that that acting in such a trigger happy way um, uh, just about COVID misinformation is going to be helpful when what what 
what signal does it send to people who may be more politically aligned with Rand Paul and also skeptical of vaccines? It says you're using your heavy hand to censor people like me. I'm not going to believe the next thing that you say. It is so like totally counterproductive. I wish yeah, I could shake them by the shoulder. It's insanity because they 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 sit around and look at each other and wonder why we're so divided. It's because they don't never once take a look at themselves and, and say, hey, maybe I am the reason why they're so mistrusting. You know, the fact that even just a simple thing of of, you know, even and where I lost it with Fauci and, and without even doing any research on him, you know, when he first came out, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, you know. This is all happening. We're listening to him. Seems like a reasonable guy. And then I found out that he intentionally lied about wearing a mask because he wanted to make sure that people didn't, you know, gobble them all up and, and the first t- the uh, frontline responders wouldn't have him. Well, just that yeah. having that kind of mindset, just like that totally like, what? how do you think like that? Why don't you just go on and say what you just said? Hey, look, we're concerned about people. These masks running out. If you can, please don't buy them. Let's give them for the first responders. That's all he had to say. Instead of lying, that's all. That's all they all had to say. No, it was. It's the noble lie idea. And the thing is, CDC in 2006 published a big kind of, uh, you know, the next pandemic type of operating manual. And one of the things that was absolutely critical in it, and stressed and underlined, was that it is absolutely crucial that people making public remarks about the pandemic, give information, uh, accurate information as, as soon as they know it, and that they don't uh, abuse that trust. Uh, and part of the giving information is to say what we don't know, what we suspect, but we don't know yet. Um, and trusting, that way you build up trust with the American people when you know it's, it's the, oh my God, we have to do this time or whatever. Um, and the mask thing from the beginning wasn't just Fauci, it was the then Surgeon General who it didn't, you know, he could have said, Please look, just hold off on the masks. We we have a distribution problem, and when we're done, no, no, no. He said that masks are something like worse than useless. Um, like like no, that's not that is not how you do it. And um, and on a couple of occasions, Fauci has said that his he's sort of revised uh, uh, previous guidelines or metrics or whatever, uh, saying, well, you know, we're trying to encourage people to do X, Y, and Z. Um, People can can smell through that and can see through that. When I remember, uh, it drove me crazy because I have two kids, thirteen and six, now seven, and the seven year old, you know, she's been wearing a mask for for two years of her seven on this planet and hates them. She, uh, uh, she was a good soldier for almost all of it, and then e- even this very morning, uh, she what did she say? She said, uh, uh, "Do you know what I think about masks? I think about them like that really bad word that uh, you know you know that I know, but I wouldn't say." Uh, which you know, which became the B word. I don't, whatever. Seven year olds are, are special beings. Um, but there was the there was a month uh, there was a week in November, in which we had just heard that one of the companies, Pfizer or whoever, had just come through with a uh, a great uh, breakthrough uh, therapeutic that looked like it had a huge amount of promise. Um, so that was happy. And then that was also the first week that um, the vaccine was available to five to eleven year olds. So for those of us who want to have our five to 11 year old vaccinated. That was a, a wonderful day of relief. And it also got us to think about like, wow, wouldn't it be great in the states that the blue states that we live in, because that's where these mandates are, that the uh, that the mask mandates will be taken away and she can see her friends faces and actually hear what the teacher says and all that good stuff. Two days later, that Friday, uh, Rochelle Walensky releases a video 
um, saying, ask the science expert kind of thing. And, uh, and the question was, do we still need to wear masks? And she smiled and she said, um, well, actually, uh, masks are shown to prevent, to you have know, like an 80% effe effectiveness rate to uh, prevent the spread of, of COVID, which is just a grotesque misreading of the science. In fact, the, uh, the vaccines themselves in, in actual percentage terms um, were less, five out of the six trials that have been done on them were less than 80%. Uh, 80% is a huge number in this. You totally made it up, extrapolated from various studies and all smiling. And then uh, added like, and also masks are pretty good for helping spread things like flu and the common cold. So it's just a, a good idea to do it. So instead of saying, hey, look, this is the greatest of all weeks for vaccination, like hooray. And also maybe here's, here's something, the vaccination is a ticket out of this uh, status of life that you, you don't like which is masking your kids. Instead of doing that, you could see the wheels spin in her head like, oh, we have to make sure that they keep those masks on. What can we say here? I'm going to um, absolutely stretch the truth beyond its recognition point and, and, and posit masks as being basically in the same continuum of effectiveness as vaccines. That is like, I can't think of a more opposite way to help spread either um, vaccination rates or, uh, or hope, <laughs> and certainly of trust in the public health uh, authorities. You can see right through them, they're saying what they think you need to hear so that you have the behavior that they want. That is not their job. Their job is to tell us what they know so we can make decisions. And we'll be right back after this message. Hey, you're like me, you're wanting to improve your health but never sure where to start. With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is difficult. I know it has been for me until I found MetPro. According to MetPro, the key to seeing results is mastering your metabolism. At MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one -on -one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimes. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide busy professionals, athletes, weekend warriors, and everyone in between the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable name in sports, entertainment, and business. They've helped thousands of individuals like you and me transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've been using MetPro for five weeks, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I finally feel like I got it figured out. This onboarding program was great. The intuitive app I can't say enough of. It helps me plan my meals, gives me a shopping list. I'm eating the foods I enjoy. And most importantly, I got increased energy and I'm seeing weight loss. I couldn't be more thrilled with MetPro. Recently, they launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. Look, this isn't food logging. It's not a tool or a workout app. The MetPro app allows you to track, analyze, and learn what your metabolism responds to best. And that's the key. That's the thing I've never had before until now. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want to access the tools that industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash dose. That's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Best of all, listeners will get up to one month free when they sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. And now back to the show. Well, and that's, I guess, where I get frustrated, just kind of falsely assuming that all these people in political positions and power, we kind of assume that they have these concepts of leadership understand. They're not really leaders. In fact, I had Sebastian Younger on the show we were talking about this very point that the problem is, is that these people aren't really leaders, they're opportunists, right? And opportunists and leadership do not, do not lie in the same bed. And 
that's what's so frustrating because if you're a leader, you're going to communicate like you just said. And I think that's where we get frustrated and we want to grab them by the shoulders because we want them to think and act like leaders. Problem is these people don't know how to be leaders, you know, and as a leadership junkie, to be a leader, you've got to be, have a mindset of like how, you know, I don't have to have all the answers. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm here to remove obstacles so these people can flourish. I sacrifice so that they may prosper. And none of these people have this, that mindset. They think it's about, instead of a, you know, teacher-scholar relationship, they look at it as a parent-child relationship. Some people look at it as a boss-subordinate relationship, which is a little better, but they look at it as parent-child, like I know better because I said so, right? And that's your default state when, you know, you don't got time to explain to a four-year-old why you're doing what you're doing. It's because I said so, damn it. And that's kind of how they, that's how they approach it, I think. Yeah, the, there's a, um, and that's very congruent with being uh, even overly concerned or overly focused on uh, disinformation. Because what does that, what does the the whole concept rely on? It relies on that, you know, we out here are these inner sheep and uh, can be led by some puppeteer, magical broadcast Oz who can tell us to think X or Y and therefore we're going to do this. Um, and uh, that's not how people consume media actually um, and kind of never have and certainly not now when we have such a, a multiplicity of sources to, to choose from. Um, but if you truly believe that the people out there are sheep, you're going to be super focused on the shepherds everywhere and saying that they're bad. And you're right. That is not leadership. One, one question that this uh, raises for me, and it's not a happy one, is our political process um, basically turns everyone into a congressman, <laughs> uh, which is to say uh, everyone is always uh, uh, running for office. Um, they are not connected, usually speaking, with tangible making of law even. What do people do in Congress? I mean, the, all of the law is made in a negotiation between four or five people, uh, usually once or twice a year when they do a big cromnibus kind of package, and there's no amendments offered to this. The, all, the entire process is completely broken down. Justin Amash, when he was in Congress, was really great on talking about the, that process and how it's been uh, completely just bulldozed over the last seven or eight years by successive uh, of, uh, leadership on both parties. Um, so uh, what, what does a, a congressman or woman do? You just, you're like uh, mugging for the camera. You're trying to get the C-SPAN cameras to notice you so you can have a viral clip somewhere. Um, uh, you're turning into a troll, a media troll, more or less. And if that's increasingly, that's definitely how congressmen act, uh, more uh, senators are acting like that now because a lot of their process is very similar too. They don't do a lot of serious work. Um, and those are the ranks from whom we usually choose the president, certain recent president notwithstanding. Um, uh, none of that is super leadership material. And even the, the uh, you know, referenced president is Trump. And uh, while one can have respect for him as a, especially as a media entrepreneur, even more than a, a real estate entrepreneur, um, uh, you know, that is, a, is similar to a congressman in that you spend your time just sort of like thinking about um, kind of maximally trolling and mugging for the cameras, um, which is not, you had a, a great phrase of, you know, get out of the way so that you can allow people to succeed, you know, where necessary. And, and you can apply that also to systems. Look and see where a system is blocking something and clear out the brush in that system to allow things to succeed quicker, which is, um, you know, arguably the some of the biggest failures of the pandemic 
are the blockages at the Food and Drug Administration, um, CDC too, to a, a different extent. And uh, and actually Trump did a little bit of uh, the unblocking stuff at the FDA on that. But if all of the ranks, all of the, the pool from which we are getting these candidates are this deeply unserious camera hogging, basically, um, that is so different than leadership. And you can have, and as a component of leadership, you can have kind of charismatic public relations, intelligentic presence. It doesn't have to not be, you know, we, uh, Lord knows military history is filled with a lot of media generals here and there. And some of them were actually good leaders too. Um, you could be both, um, although it's usually a path to a certain uh, uh, set of corruptions. But um, you're right. We don't have a, a, a big evident leadership uh, kind of producing uh, machinery right now. Um, and, uh, and it's worrying and it's, it's very telling. I mean, if anyone um, uh, who has led their own organization, I've uh, been fortunate enough to manage people for a lot of my career um, and started organizations and, and things like that. And the, uh, the, the difference in mindset uh, of what you're doing and the way that politicians behave uh, as they're, especially in the the crucible moments when they're supposed to be managing things during a crisis, it's it's profound and it's dispiriting. It is, and, but I wonder why why this kind of slavish or this kind of sycophantish adoration of 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 these politicians. That's why I was like, I could never, I've never been so enamored with a politician, a president, any candidate that I would just do anything for. I wouldn't go to a, and you just see this kind of blind allegiance on both sides. And I don't, I don't understand that. I, I really don't. And I think there's something to, uh, there's understanding the consumer side of politics is an ongoing struggle, let's say. Um, and I think the rise of Trump in particular highlighted how, um, little we were paying attention to that. Um, when, you know, all the gatekeeping functions, uh, including within the Republican Party back then, um, said, OK, come on, let's not do this. Uh, this clearly he's not serious for the following uh, reasons. Um, turns out the people who consume politics, that wasn't what was driving their interest, uh, wasn't necessarily ideology. Um, uh, and this is a challenge uh, of of interpreting and reacting to populist moments everywhere. And we, we have been over the last 10 years on, in on the entire globe, we've seen a very significant rise in populism. Maybe has tapered off in the last year or two. Uh, it's unclear that people who study this are, are, uh, are a little bit split on that. Um, but it tells us that politics is satisfying some need that is different than needs that I need to have satisfied and that you need to have satisfied. And part of me uh, wants to say, well, that's because all y'all are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But that's uh, that's not a productive line of thought. Um, and you're not going to um, you're not going to be able to talk to those people if you truly believe that. And I don't. To be clear, I don't believe that. Um, I I recognize that I'm actually wired a little bit differently. Like um, to be uh, to be a member of any non-sporting tribe to me sounds kind of crazy. I mean, I'm a Californian and I'm an American, so like I'll, I'll take those ones as well. Um, but, uh, but other than that, I, you know, I don't understand a political, uh, uh, uh kind of, uh, affinity that way, but, uh, I, that's a minority position, not that minority to be clear. Like the Gallup has been asking people for 40 years, how do you politically self-identify? 
uh, regardless of your uh, party membership, Democrat, Republican or independent, independent has been the largest category for most of the last 20 years, including now it's like a 44 percent or something uh, compared to, you know, 20s and uh, low 30s for the, the main parties. So there is some block like that. But politics is clearly serving some. Um, it could be a psychological need. It could be a communitarian uh, need. I mean, there's a lot of people have been making the comparison the last few years of um, that it's taking the place of religion, uh, the, the role that religion played in, in certain people's lives. I think there might be something to that as we kind of get rid of our, our local community bonds. Um, and we need we, we, we need to have some kind of 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 glue. Um, so I'm trying to understand that and to operate in that world uh, and to be cognizant that my preferences are very rarely anybody else's. Um, but uh, uh, that does lend towards more of a, of a populist bent. And whereas populists sell themselves as great leaders, actually, I mean, that's part of the, what they do is that they're going to go clean up the mess. They're going to drain the swamp. Um, they, you know, they tend to be more and more outsiders. Bernie Sanders, you know, in many senses, the most successful populist on the left of the last 10 years, never quite getting the brass ring, but definitely reshaping the Democratic Party, which he does not belong to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not even that a member even. of the party. Yeah. That's pretty that's pretty great and interesting. Um, but, uh, th- you know, those people, uh, their outsiderness is the whole point. And so people can believe in the fiction that that gives them special uh, secret managerial uh, powers. It usually does not. Um, maybe in some cases it can or will. Um, but, uh, uh, haven't seen a lot of it, especially on the national level. I think local level can be a little yeah. different. Yeah. Brett, I had Brett Weinstein and, uh, Heather Hang on the show. We were talking, I just thought about this while you're talking. They kind of attributed to this kind of, uh, tribe mentality. It's biological in the sense that it's, it's rooted in this fear of starving to death, meaning as human beings, we can't live by ourselves. Right. I mean, it's this kind of the strange thing about freedom is that, you know, we yearn for this freedom to be independent, but at the same time, we're so dependent on each other for their basic necessities and needs. And if you're ostracized from the tribe, one of the worst things you can do, you know, if you're in a tribe and you watch a, you know, a uh, wedding happen and these certain birds fly over and then the next day the bride dies, well, then that starts this whole phenomenon of like, those birds cause death, you know, so we're going to kill all these birds. And you're going to go along with it. And even though you may disagree and you're like, Hey, you know, I, I study birds and that's not, that's crazy talk. You know, you'll go along with it because if the whole tribe's going along with it. You don't want to be ostracized from the tribe because that draw of being, or that fear of being ostracized in, in uh, abandoned into the woods to starve is so overpowering. I thought that was kind of interesting. There might be something to that too. You know, biologically we don't. Yeah. And there's also, and sociologically and evolutionarily also, uh, uh, you know, we're we're able to think up into a certain level number of of uh, of humans and that we can know in our in a network, in a in a tribe, in a society. And that, like I forget what the number is, it's 20, 40, 50, something like that. Um, certainly not much more than that. And once it gets beyond that, you're going to need really crudely symbolic signifiers to show that you are on the good team and in fact, not trying to lay siege or, you know, take all your, your food and, and women folk and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there might be some, some ghosts of that too, that make us susceptible to believe that the people that we don't know, if they have these other signifiers, 
that that they are obviously and irredeemably uh, evil and just sort of need to be stopped by any possible blunt tool that we have. And that gets into the engagement thing that we were talking about earlier. That becomes a harder fiction to maintain or a harder superstition to maintain when you bring uh, the guy from the, the other tribe in and break bread and talk and argue and and have fun and drink and turn around and maybe uh, you go to their tribe next time. Um, exchange helps lubricate all that sense of trust. But we're going from a, a, a traditionally high trust society, the United States. It's been one of the best things about us over the years compared to even other successful uh, nation states in, in Western Europe, for example. Uh, we tend to have higher trust or have tended to have higher trust, but our trust is plummeting. Um, and, you know, part part of uh, of that is kind of, um, you know, you want to say good because, you know, you shouldn't have blind faith in institutions who have their own corruptions and they've been pulling the wool over your eyes um, in a media context. You know, you could say, yeah, we trusted the media in 1969, but there are only three networks and they weren't really doing a particularly good job. And, you know, the, all the cities were, were dominated by a local monopoly daily newspaper. Maybe it's good to have that trust erode because it helps bring up a bunch of new uh, competitors. That's all true, but also generally true when you go from a high trust to low trust society, that just imposes all kinds of costs on transactions. Suddenly we're eyeing people with suspicion and we're going to get to the point and we're already there a little bit where like, your politics will uh, prevent you from having a transaction with somebody using some service. And that's, you know, that's not the trajectory that I was hoping for uh, as someone who was born in 1968, you know, with, uh, I believe, interracial marriage was only legalized on the federal level in 1967. Um, and, you know, the denial of services to people based on uh, on group characteristics was seen as a pretty bad thing growing up. And I, I worry that it's now going to be seen as tolerable as long as we can identify those things, not necessarily by ethnic group or religion, but by kind of set of political beliefs and affiliations. Yeah, it is scary. And even as recently yesterday, I was, can't remember who it was. Oh, what was that actor's name? Maybe it was, not that I care what an actor says, but at least it gets promoted out there. I think it was Ron Perlman. Was he the guy that played the beast in Beauty and the whatever, or hell, Hellboy guy. And he's advocating that, you know, and a bunch of other, like, well, let's just separate, you know, let's just do, let's go blue stuff. Let's just make California separate. And they, that, that people don't understand the uniqueness and the exceptionalism of the experiment of the United States is troubling to me. And, you know, even if I talk about that in those terms, I get labeled, you know, a certain way that, you know, to say that we're exceptional and, I guess it's just the difference between looking at like, okay, because of the, for me, because of the things that we put in place, that these flawed individuals who had these ideals and had the foresight to put these ideals down, you know, in the whole history of the world, no one's ever really done it that way and that well. And it led to this exponential in improvement in so many aspects of lives. We're not finished, but you could argue all those things that we've seen improvements on was because of the experiment laid, you know, put into play 240 odd years ago, right? And some people say, no, it just needs to be tore down. And that's what I have trouble with. I don't, the tearing down, I don't, I don't, that really does, rubs me the wrong way, but there's a certain, a large percentage, it seems, of people that just want to tear it down and start over. There's a, um, um, 
I don't know if you follow uh, Iowa Hawk on Twitter, but he's one of the very greatest uh, Twitter follows. Iowa Hawk uh, is his Twitter handle, Dave Burge, which I think is still even a gnome to, gnome to plume, but uh, he's a very funny, uh, cranky guy who used to live in Chicago and now lives down in uh, Texas and Austin and a big car fanatic. And uh, he has a great weekend uh, car ID based on old photos, strings, just apropos of nothing. But he has pointed out that there's this trend uh, among certain types of activists, and this is largely on the left uh, in this case, um, although he aims at the right a lot uh, too, but um, who take over existing um, uh, revered institutions could be the New York Times, let's say, or could be, uh, you know, could be a, a museum. It could be this, that, the other. Um, hollow it out, um, <laughs> uh, like drive out a lot of the good people um, make its meaning and, and emphasis and focus much different. Um, and then basically wear the institution like a skin suit. Um, and there, I, 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 I see that process happening a, a lot. There's in fact, I'm sitting you in, in our, um, studios for uh, Paloma media, which is a small company that I've helped, uh, uh, throw off the ground, which is a little podcast studio. We're right down the street from the tenement museum, which is a very famous museum here in, uh, in New York city, Manhattan about, uh, mostly Jewish immigrants and the rag trading business who would live in these uh, narrow quarters in the late 19th century and early 20th and fascinating museum. And they got people who went on the board of it who said, you know, we need to uh, solve our problem about the lack of representation of people of color here. And uh, which is an interesting initiative until you realize it's, it's the tenement museum. <laughs> it's a museum that's actually about basically Jewish immigrants in these, in these, like they, they wanted to create a, an aspect of the museum that was just not part of the thing that it was covering. And it led to people resigning and, and like it, it's caused a real, uh, and you just sort of like start thinking about what are you, what are you doing? And the thing that, that uh, uh, troubles me and my colleague, uh, Nancy Rommelman, also of Paloma Media uh, and a great freelancer has written about a lot in, in the context of Portland and the street protests there, which she's covered a lot. She used to live there. Um, is that those people there who are going in the streets every day or were for more than a hundred days in a row, they really wanted to tear stuff down. They wanted to light fires. They wanted to smash windows and do all of this. And the question that she kept returning to with them in person, but also wondering in print and elsewhere is what are you going to build? What do you, what do you, what, what are you building in there? Um, like that it is a, it is, you're right, a tear down process. Um, and, and I get, you know, some institutions and some uh, legacy systems um, deserve to be dismantled. I mean, we have uh, in New York and a lot of other places uh, as a legacy of the way that the New Deal was applied. Um, you have a lot of redlining um, that happened back then in which um, people were kind of encouraged to be segregated uh, by the federal government uh, in order so that these neighborhoods could be loan worthy and these ones could not. Now, that's illegal now. But look at the way that your local school district is drawn uh, and then ch compare that to the redlining map. Um, and those school districts are uh, in most uh, in most cases, the public ones, you are sentenced to your local school based on where you live. Um, so if the map was created by redlining, which is now illegal, but the school map is the redlining <laughs> map. Well, there is a system that I think that we yeah. can talk about dismantling, exactly. maybe break up that map, right? Like be smart about it. But the constitution is not a map. 
The founded the founding of the country is not a, a, a map. It was an incredible set of tools with which we can always tinker with and, and argue with, but we don't just repudiating it on its own sense uh, for its own reasons, or just repudiating whatever institution, uh, getting rid of one company, getting rid of one person for doing a bad thing. You're not building anything. And I don't see from the types of people who cheer this stuff on uh, anytime that they go and try to like uh, build a new media property or a new whatever, it invariably really fails. Why? Because it's a really pinched depiction of the world. It's sour. It is not fun. They're not, people will actually enjoy humor and enjoy joy and, and like spreading things and being generous and the kind of institutions that are being hollowed out. Um, NPR is one of them, national public radio, which I've listened to forever. Um, and you can't, I, it's now we play a game. They're like, how many seconds are we going to, to last after we turn it on before we hear institutional fill in the blank ism? Um, and it's, you know, about 11 seconds on average. It's amazing. It's not interesting. Like, and I say this as someone who's written a ton uh, about legacies of racism in the country. It's a fascinating topic uh, and, and grim in many ways, and it's shaped my politics in opposition to the institutional fill in the blankism. But if that was all I ever talked about, my God, I would bore myself. Um, uh, uh, you have to pres you have to build something else that has any kind of sense of wonder and beauty or anything or positivity, uh, which is not to say that you turn your back on bad news. It's just that build another institution. And I don't see a lot of the, the teardown types doing that. Uh, Cause it's easy to tear down. It's easy. It's easy. You know, we could sit here for an hour and we both of us talk about the things that we, we hate and that would be easy. That would be an easy conversation and it might feel good at the moment, but it's pretty hard to talk about what you really want. And that's the building versus tearing down. Right. I mean, even on a personal level, I mean, you think about it. I mean, you think about, well, well, what is it that I really want? What is it? Who do I really want to become? That's hard work. You know, it's easy for me to go, well, I don't like that. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that jackass. I hate that. I hate this too. What do I stand for? That's what it's really about. And what do you stand? And I appreciate people who, who know what they stand for. And, I, and I'll fight to the death to those who, who know what they stand for and they can argue it you know, with compassion and conviction, but not just, you know, talking about the latest talking point or tearing somebody down or canceling somebody, or, you know, all of that. And I think that's, you know, I guess, is, is that what libertarianism, I mean, I've never, I mean, I certainly know, well, in your mind, what's the difference between being a libertarian and being a conservative? What's the, what's the biggest difference there, do you think? Well, a conservative, um, there, I think there's more of a sense of it's in, it's in the word, you know, like you're trying to conserve things about, about the past, which I actually have more, uh, kind of understanding for and empathy with, uh, I mean, more inclined towards that as I get older, not that I'm getting more conservative, but I, I understand appreciating the value of pre-existing institutions and to, uh, just as a default, think twice about scrapping them. Um, uh, so like, you know, if you're going to pack the court from Supreme Court from nine to 15, um, uh, even before we get there, I'm like, okay, we've had a thing that existed this way for a really long time. Um, maybe that reflects some wisdom that I'm not aware of yet. So maybe let's slow our roll here as we approach that. Like I get that more now um, uh, as a libertarian. Libertarian, I think, centers so much on the individual and individual kind of uh, latitude. Um, and so libertarians can be uh, pretty critical of uh, even private sector 
illiberalism, right? Private sector attempts to stifle people because of their viewpoints, because of their lifestyle, because of what they want to put in their body or not put in their body. And um, traditionally, when I was growing up, um, it was conservatives who were on the other end of a lot of those fights. William F. Buckley, you know, was talking about how evil the Beatles were. You know, it's just like, okay, I'm on Team Beatles right, here, right. William F. <laughs> Although he, apparently he became uh, friends with at least a couple of them later on in his life. So he changed his mind on some of that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I more affiliate with where the kind of transgressive, independent minded uh, new left was in the late 60s and early 70s. That's my, what my background is more like in. But, you know, I see those people now and um, and I'm even happier to you know describe myself as a libertarian and, and not anything else. So uh, libertarians like the future. Uh, they like technology. They're not scared of of uh, of the newfangled thing. They tend to think that um, those things are going to trend in a positive direction because human ingenuity is this great and ever replenishing uh, source. Whereas conservatives sometimes, uh, Virginia Postrel, former editor of uh, Reason Magazine, had a great book in the late 90s called The Future and Its Enemies. And she tried to create a new sort of way of thinking about it, regardless of right and left. You had uh, what she called dynamists, uh, and and I think she said stasists um, was the other poll. And um, so you have people who just sort of want to lock things in amber uh, uh, on left and right. Um, you know, it could be the left has a, uh, an idea of the 1950s, which is so, again, so bizarre, uh, as someone who grew up in the seventies, that the fifties would be something that the left was holding onto. Uh, it was really the opposite, but, um, uh, and conservatives might have their own kind of, uh, version of, you know, the, the life was best in fill in the blank time. Um, you know, whether it's before the New Deal or before the Immigration Act of 1965 or whatever, uh, whereas uh, uh, dynamists, in her view, libertarians or just, you know, um, whatever uh, you might throw in are like, hey, look, um, more people, great, more commerce and exchange, great, more freedom, more uh, local and and uh, generally speaking, autonomy um, that is all or mostly to the good, and we shouldn't fear it. We should embrace it and be wary of government attempts, in particular, to um, to stifle it, to limit. Yeah, well, that's certainly where I where I rest, and I have for quite some time. You're right, and uh, I, I I want to take care of the people that can't be taken care of, but at the same time, I just want to be kind of left left alone. That's kind of what I look at government for. Government needs to take care of those that can't take care of themselves. That's been abused and it's obviously taken to a far extreme. Yeah, and I want. I don't care what anybody else does. I do. I th I think the libertarian has that just that right amount of empathy is what I'm trying to get at. Right. I think you have to have a certain amount of empath to be to be an effective political belief. And libertarianism seems to have that level of empathy that that I kind of attract. I like the word empathy. Well, there's some sociopaths too. Oh, that's true. Let's be let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, right. There are. <laughs> but but uh, no, I think I think empathy is very much part of it, and uh, and I think about this constantly. This is kind of the role that we can play if we choose, and by we, I'm now just saying libertarians, but also sort of political independence can play. Is that we can do a little bit of officiating. Um, uh, or sort of even bring together the sides that are busy trying to lob Molotovs at each other across a long chasm is like we 
we know what it's like to have our, our arguments out, outvoted. It happens all the time. Um, and like we don't completely lose our marbles over it. Um, and we also know what it's like, I think, more so than a lot of people do these days uh, to be surrounded with people who um, have very different uh, political viewpoints and, and, uh, and commitments uh, than we do and then with one another. And that's actually great. You know, I mean, the, the part about American exceptionalism, um, and I say this as someone who's married to a French woman, um, is that uh, it is an amazing thing to have a, a country that is not a nation state. We don't have an American nation. We don't have, by virtue of language, uh, ethnicity, or religion, this group of people we call Americans. Uh, this is something that Ronald Reagan uh, emphasized over and over again. Uh, and I and I wish and I lament the fact that Republicans do that much less now. Um, that people are Americans by choice, and what a wonderful thing that is. And uh, and so if we can, th by definition, that means people of crazy different backgrounds are colliding with one another and and doing this on this kind of crazy playing field that we've created. Um, how great is that? Um, the, the default in human history is to take the we only have a tribe with 20 people and you look funny. Um, so I'm going to do what I can to make sure you can't come near us and I'm going to make a politics out of demonizing you. And that has been rightly understood with a lot of fits and starts and setbacks. But that is rightly understood. It's not a very American approach. Um, so, uh, yes, that is exceptional and it's great. And I want to have that. But I also want to have that in our domestic squabbles with one another, too. Um, which requires a certain amount of trust and empathy um, and willingness to subject yourself, uh, you know, to people or with people who don't agree with you and have different priorities. Um, I think that's fun. Um, so I wish that other other people would uh, would take as much pleasure out of it uh, than I do, even if and again, like me, you feel yourself um, bemoaning and bewailing the state of affairs in many different ways. There's a lot of troubling stuff going on out there and I wish I could, I could, uh, change it or move it in a better direction. Um, but I would much rather be doing it here than in any other country. Yeah. Well said. And I knew that's the reason why I wanted to have you on the show. I mean, what, what you just said right there is exactly how I feel. And I think it it's certainly, I, I think it's, there's more people than we think that think like that. I mean, it's evidence. I mean, that's why I think in large part why Joe Rogan has 11 million listeners per episode, because I think a lot of what you said, you, you know, because Rogan's all over the map. I mean, he can't tie him down as a right wing or a left wing, you know, as he says himself, he's a, yeah. he's a dope smoking, you know, idiot comic. These are his words, right? They just like to have conversations with people. Yeah. And I think, yeah, isn't that fun, right? Isn't that fun to sit down and have conversations with people? And that's what I wish more people would do, because it is fun. And, and, it, and it's, it's engaging. Matt, we've been talking for over an hour. I can't believe it, but uh, this was a fun conversation for me. How can people learn more about your podcast, your publication, Reason, all the stuff that you're on? So uh, go to reason.com. Um, it's a monthly magazine that's been published since 1968, a magazine of free minds and free markets. Um, publish content, video, audio, podcast, journalism on a daily basis. It's a monthly print magazine, but we do all this other stuff too. In fact, been doing video since 2008, thanks to Drew Carey, TV funny man, Drew Carey uh, gave us a, a grant and said, go learn video. And so we did, and we've done all kinds of great, great stuff there. Yeah. Um, and you can follow Reason on Twitter, at Reason. You can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Welch. I'm also 
uh, co-host of the uh, at Reason at the Reasoned Roundtable podcast and uh, outside of Reason at the Fifth Column uh, podcast with Camille Foster and Michael Moynihan. Um, both of those conversations, I think, uh, uh, overlap a lot with what we're, we're saying. So if you found this at all interesting, um, be warned, the Fifth Column is a little bit more profane, a little bit more drunk. Uh, the reason roundtable is a little bit, a little bit more, uh, uh, caffeinated, uh, and, and regular, but, uh, and more explicitly libertarian, but, uh, that, that'll uh, get you acquainted. I try to write and produce as much as possible and also check out Paloma media. If you can palomamedia.com, which is where I'm uh, uh, broadcasting this. From. Fantastic. I'll have links to all that in the show notes. And I do highly recommend both those shows. I love listening to those podcasts. Um, right, they're, they're engaging and fun conversations and uh, you're one of the good ones Matt and I hope we can keep the conversation going at some time in the future thanks for coming on the show thank you so much hey thanks so much for tuning into the show I hope you got some value out of this episode if you did please do me a huge favor tell somebody about this show tell your spouse tell your kids tell your coworkers. let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world go to doseofleadership.com you can learn more about my services if you're looking for somebody to speak teach or coach about leadership I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.